Hey friends, this is Linda, and thanks for joining us on Calling Water. This month, we're starting a new series based on some of the judges in the Old Testament. We're kicking things off today with Under the Palm of Deborah, where we'll look at the story of Deborah and her exemplary leadership over the people of Israel during a time of utter chaos. I hope that today's episode will not only help you understand the meaning of Judges chapter 4, but give you direction and clarity on what the text calls you to do about it. Okay, let's get started. So I was thrust into leadership roles at a very young age. My mom had become the Sunday school director when I was in the sixth grade, which meant that I started serving the minute I graduated elementary school. (laughs) Now, I'm grateful that I was given the opportunities that I got, but man, being a leader at 12 years old meant I was not yet emotionally mature enough, and also I didn't have adequate training. So as a result, I had to learn a lot on the job. At first, I was under the impression that in order to be an effective leader, I would have to be mean and commanding and run a tight ship. I was a big believer in doling out penalties for misbehavior, and I tolerated very little. And this was how I operated probably until my mid to late 20s. And, you know, we got stuff done, but in retrospect, I was an awful leader. Because a leader is more than getting people to do what you say. And so many leaders, whether it's in companies or churches, forget that being a leader is hardly a privilege. It's a hefty responsibility and one that needs to be handled extremely well. Thankfully for us, the Bible gives us copious examples of great and sometimes not so great leadership. And today we'll examine an example of a good one in Judges chapter 4. Let's start by looking at today's text and working out what it means. The stories in the book of Judges take place after the death of Joshua, who had led the people of Israel into the promised land after their lengthy sojourn in the wilderness. And Joshua tells the people before he dies to remember God and to follow his commands, which we find out is a bit of advice that is quickly forgotten by the Israelites. Thus begins a terrible pattern that happens repeatedly throughout Judges. It starts out with the people turning away from God and doing evil in the eyes of God. So then they're oppressed by their enemies. And then because of this, they realize their sins, repent, and cry out to God for deliverance, which God obliges by appointing a judge to lead them to victory. And then there is peace in the land. During the time of peace, however... The people abandon God and the cycle starts all over again. Even though judges were raised up periodically after Joshua's death, this practice of appointing judges can be traced back to Moses in Exodus chapter 18. In that passage, Moses is found serving as a judge for the people from morning till evening. So he's basically burning himself to the ground. So when his father-in-law Jethro sees this, he straight up tells him, what you're doing is not good. And then he advises him to do the following in Exodus chapter 18, verse 21. Select capable men from all the people 
men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. And one such capable, trustworthy man, years later, was a woman named Deborah. Deborah is the only female judge in this book, but whether it's because she was really the only one or if she was the only one ever recorded, we don't know. And it's kind of unfortunate that we're starting with her in this series because we'll find out in just a moment that she was pretty much the gold standard when it came to the judges of Israel. I think there's just so much to be learned from her in terms of how to be a leader and what we should expect from our leaders. Now, judges in those days were not only moral arbiters, even though it was a big part of what they did. After all, when we're first introduced to Deborah in the text, we find in Judges chapter 4, verse 5, that she held court under the palm of Deborah under Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. Now, in addition to arbitrating disputes as a judge, Deborah was a prophet, a warrior, a wife possibly, a poet, and also a singer-songwriter. It's quite the resume, right? And also, just a fun fact, her name in Hebrew literally translates to bee, as in honeybee. And I love this little detail because, you know, she really is the queen bee in our story today. So the main conflict in the story of Deborah is that the people of Israel are being terrorized by Canaanite enemies, namely a man named Sisera, who was the commander of such army. And the text makes it a point to say that he had 900 chariots fitted with iron under his command, which were the main tools of his oppression of the Israelites. Like They had no chance against these chariots. Now, one of the times that Deborah was under the palm of Deborah, which presumably is a palm tree where people went to seek an audience with her, she summons Barak, who was the leader of the Israelite army. And she tells him to take his men and go up against Sisera and his army because God would surely deliver the enemy into their hands. And when Barak hears this, what he says in response in Judges chapter 4, verse 8 could possibly be seen as insubordination because he says, if you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Now, you might think that Barack was being a particular kind of coward to say, I'll only go if you come with me. And he might have been for all we know. But I think there are a variety of possibilities to consider as to what he meant by this response. Maybe Barak was skeptical of her prophecy. Remember, Sisera had 900 chariots, meaning their enemy had much more advanced weapons. And they had been forced into submission because of these chariots for all these years. And now suddenly, without any change in their own situation, they're supposed to go up against this superior army? Hard pass. Or... Perhaps Barak thought for sure that the Israelites had zero chance of victory, so he didn't want to be the only one responsible for what would surely be a failed mission. So here he's insisting that she sign her name to it too. 
a more generous reading would be that because Deborah was a primary leader and a prophet as well, he wanted her there with him because her presence on the battlefield would be instrumental in motivating the army. And a more sinister reading would be that Varrock is maybe challenging Deborah's authority. He could have felt humiliated to be summoned and ordered around by a woman, no less, that he is essentially telling her that she needs to follow him now. Whatever the motivation, it doesn't matter because the outcome is the same. Barack didn't obey immediately. And Deborah tells him that because of his ambivalence, that when the Israelites do claim victory, the honor of defeating Sisera would not be his, which is everything to a military leader like Barack, right? Furthermore, that happy privilege will go to a woman. Double burn. And this is how the story unfolds. Barak and his army get a decisive win over Sisera's army, which is amazing because, again, 900 chariots. Uh, Sisera, however, escapes on foot and attempts to hide out in the tent of a woman named Jael, whose people were allies of Sisera's. And she welcomes him and shows him all manner of hospitality, up until the moment she kills him using a hammer and a tent peg to his head. I know, it's savage. And after this, the Israelites had no more complications extricating themselves from their Canaanite oppressors. And the Bible tells us they had peace in the land for the next 40 years. So what does the story call us to do? For one, it gives us a great model for leadership in any context. Because you are all leaders in some way. We all are. Even if you don't have a specific organizational title, as followers of God, we are called to live out the things that we have learned through scripture, which is to lead others to Christ and to lead by example. So in the upcoming episodes, we'll look at some of the other judges who were in fact inefficient leaders in many ways. But Deborah here demonstrates such grace in the way she leads. Firstly, Deborah doesn't shy away from her role. She could have made so many excuses as to why she couldn't fulfill her duties, and no one would have blamed her. In fact, at this point in history, many might have even expected her to fail miserably. But she holds court regularly, mediating disputes, she communicates whatever she receives from God, and she even goes into battle alongside her people. So whatever leadership role you are given, embrace it and embrace it with confidence. Now, this is something that I personally struggle with. I get bogged down with a severe case of imposter syndrome time to time, especially when I'm given a new responsibility. Like, who am I to teach? Who am I to write curriculum? Who am I to run a podcast even? But just as I am learning, whatever you feel you are inadequate to do, know that you've been given that task because someone believes in your ability to succeed. Step into it boldly and watch God use you in ways you never thought possible. Secondly, Deborah doesn't seek glory. She could have just led the armies into battle herself. She could have been the one to destroy Sisera, I'm sure. 
but she delegates and she lets others get the credit for the things that she set in motion. And when it's all said and done, she wisely gives glory to God. Recognition and affirmation are not inherently evil things, just like money isn't evil on its own. But the Bible tells us that the love of money is the root of all evil. Not that we don't need money, but because the pursuit of wealth often causes people to compromise in awful ways. In very much the same way, in whatever you do, especially as a leader, don't go out of your way to seek glory. Because what is it worth, really? Surely it's nice when people recognize you for your hard work and shower you with accolades, sure, but that should not be the fuel that sustains you. Stay grounded in your purpose and leave the results to God. Give God the glory for your wins because he is the real reason for them anyway. And finally, the story of Deborah reminds us of what we should look for in the leaders we follow. If you don't already, it's imperative that you have at least one person in your life who serves as your mentor, much like Deborah was for Barack. And we'll talk more about mentorship in the weeks to come, but seriously, start looking for someone who can be this force in your life. And to be clear, a mentor is not someone who manipulates you to do their bidding using fear tactics and guilt trips. They are people, though imperfect themselves, who will always look out for your best interests. They are available to you, who will hold court for you whenever you need it under their own palm of Deborah to offer you guidance, comfort, and help you make the right choices. And when you're afraid or uncertain, they are willing to walk alongside you into whatever you're facing. I sincerely hope that you can find your own Deborah to lean on and also be a Deborah for others in your life who need the same from you. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the story of Deborah who shows us how to lead and also how to be led. There are so many voices we tend to follow, many of which are at odds with the things you want for us. So remind us once again that we are infinitely valued and loved by you and that we are more than capable of the things you have entrusted to us. And when we do succeed, teach us to be humble for every win and every victory is yours. Surround us with people in our lives who can help us grow our faith and help us to be that influence for others as well. In Jesus' name, amen.